I'll turn it over to Mike. He's going to teach first, and at the end, if we have time, we'll be doing our group prayer time. And just excited you're all here today. We look forward to a good day of worship of our Lord together. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for our church, and I thank you for the Sunday school class. I thank you for the opportunity we have week after week to come and be encouraged and to grow in the knowledge of your word. Lord, so much happens in our lives in between the time that we're here in this building on Sundays. Even this week, many of us have had challenges, unexpected challenges, sometimes challenges that we knew were coming. Lord, I pray that you would still our hearts today. Enable us to calmly and and through the power of your spirit, listen to your word, give us ears to hear. And Lord, help us to be quick to apply the word that we hear today, both in Sunday school and church and in evening church. Help us apply it to ourselves, Lord. Help us not fall into the habit of thinking of all the people that we know that need to hear the message. Lord, we need to hear these messages. So I pray that you would apply them to our hearts. And in turn, we would not just be hearers, but we would be doers of your word. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, good morning. If you want, you can be turning to the book of Philippians. That's where we have been the last couple of weeks, and we will be continuing there. We ended our study last week entitled Pursuing Holiness by reading Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. That's where we left off, and that's where we're going to actually pick up this morning. If you remember... We have been looking at chapter 3 towards the end, and we were looking at motivations to help us follow Paul's example to aggressively pursue Christ-likeness, to pursue holiness with everything we've got. Paul exhorted the Philippians to follow his example in this and not the example of the false teachers who were either adding to the gospel in the way of legalism, or they were taking away from the gospel. He gave them three motivations to do this. He told them that to do anything less than this was contrary to the gospel. The gospel demanded it, that it's the goal of all true followers of Christ to grow more and more like him. We are, in fact, predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29. And it doesn't start in heaven, it starts the day you are born again into the kingdom. Paul went on to tell them and us that another reason to pursue holiness was because we are citizens of heaven, verse 20 of chapter 3. And this world is not our home. We were reminded of that. Our home's in heaven, our king is there, our inheritance is there, our loyalty and allegiance is there. It's not this world and its values that should preoccupy us. Everything about us is and should be different, and we should not be at home here. He added to that the thought to further motivate us by telling us we eagerly await the Savior, verse 21 of chapter 3. He tells us that when He comes, He will transform our fleshly, lowly bodies into glorious, heavenly ones. We will no longer struggle with sin. We will be perfected in righteousness. He said all of this to motivate true believers to not buy into the perverted lies that some of the so-called Christian teachers were propagating, that they didn't have to strive towards holiness, that they could just live any way they wanted. 
And we ended briefly looking at chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul exhorted them to stand firm. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. I want to read that verse again. Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul says, therefore, because of these truths I've shared with you, stand firm. Don't compromise. Be strong. Don't waver. Stand firm in the faith. You can tell by the words that he used that he loved the people he was talking to. Look at what he calls them. He calls them brothers, his joy, his crown, his beloved. He cares deeply about them and he knows the importance of them having a strong, stable faith. And that's the call to us today. We live in a world where the Christianity our forefathers have handed down to us is being attacked, do we not? And it's being attacked on many fronts. One way it's attacked is from the devil himself and from his demons. Scripture says that Satan is what? A roaring lion going about roaming the earth seeking those who he can devour. Besides Satan, the world's also against us. Everything we stand for is diametrically opposed by the world and its philosophies of life and all who are under Satan's control. We see it more and more every day that goes by in our culture. I truly believe it's not going to be that long before true Christians are persecuted here in this country. It's been happening all around us in the, in the rest of the world, and I believe it's going to reach us in the not-too-distant future. And if Satan and the world were not enough of an enemy, we're still under the influence of our own flesh. Ever since Adam fell, we have been struggling with the flesh, and that flesh is going to be with us until God glorifies us and gives us spiritual bodies. So we still constantly deal with things like lust and pride and selfishness. All of these things attack us, and if we don't stand firm, we are under pressure to fall, to stumble. And that's Paul's exhortation. He says to stand firm. Now, when you think of the word firm, what do you think about? I think of a rock. Be strong like a rock. Do not waver. Do not be knocked off course or knocked off your foundation. I have the picture in my mind of a large boulder in the middle of a rushing creek with the water rushing down, hitting the rock, splashing off, diverting and going around. It doesn't move it. As I said last week, several times I think, one of the major problems I think with Christian and the church today is that they are trying to walk with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And the Bible says this cannot be done successfully. That person does not have a rock-like faith. They are unstable. Paul wants the Philippians to have a stable, rock-like faith. And the Bible has a lot to say about instability. I'm going to read just quickly a few verses. You don't have to turn there because I'm going to shoot through them pretty quick. Ephesians 4.14. Paul said, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. James said in James 1.6-8, For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Later on, he says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We've all heard the parable Jesus told about the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. 
Storms came, the house built on the sand, the unstable house fell. He wasn't talking about Florida sinkholes, was he? He was talking about an unstable faith. This theme is throughout Scripture. Our faith needs to be able to stand. One that is unstable is particularly vulnerable to falling into sin. In 2 Peter 2.14, Peter said, Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Peter tells us that unstable faiths are vulnerable to falling into sin. He reiterates this same thought again in chapter 3.16 when he says, Speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the taught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. According to Peter, we learn it's also the unstable that misinterpret scripture. And I could go on and on. I was really surprised at how many scriptures talk about the pitfalls of an unstable faith. One that changes with the wind, that compromises. Now, don't forget the context of these words. Many of the people Paul was writing to were trying to have it both ways. They were not holding on to the faith as taught to them by Paul and Timothy and the other disciples. And many are trying to do the same thing today. Trying to have part of the gospel, part of the truth, but trying to walk with one foot in the world as well. And the consequence of that is instability. Paul wants them to stand firm and be stable and have a rock-like faith. And that is his admonition to us. So I've entitled this study, Becoming Rock-Solid Christians. If you were to say about someone, he's rock-solid, what would that mean to you? I'm not talking about their muscles or their abs. If that were the case, I know I definitely would not be rock-solid. I got a good reminder of that a couple weeks ago when my... Seven-year-old grandson from Haiti hit me in the stomach playing with me, and I about threw up. <laughs> I didn't realize how out of shape I was. I'm definitely not rock solid in that way. In the context of our faith, if we were rock solid, we would know what we believe. Those beliefs would line up with Scripture, and not only would we have the right beliefs, and our walk would also line up as well. Our actions would not contradict our beliefs. And so with that as our pretext, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. And as we study this portion of Scripture, we're going to see after exhorting them to stand firm in the Lord, Paul goes on to fire off several exhortations. On the surface, they seem almost random. But we have to remember that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's orchestrated by the invisible hand of God to proclaim exactly what God needs and wants to impart. And so Paul, after he gives this spiel on the mindset of being citizens of the kingdom and to go after holiness, and then after he tells us to stand firm, these are the thoughts that immediately come to his mind about how we do that, how we stand firm. Now, I see in these verses seven specific principles found in these verses. Now, we could come up with many more, but this passage, we're going to see specifically seven principles to practice to become rock-solid Christians. And we're not going to get to all of them today, but we'll get through three or four. The first one is found in verses 2 and 3. And if I didn't know what was coming, this is not what I would start talking about, but this is what the Lord put on Paul's heart to say, 
Let's read verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. After telling them to stand firm, this is the thought that immediately comes to Paul's mind. He said in verse 2, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Sintichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We're going to learn from these verses the first principle that Paul exhorts them to practice is to cultivate and maintain unity among believers. When I think of having a stable, firm faith, unity is not the first thing that comes to my mind. I would have picked something different. But this is what Paul, after telling them to stand firm, this is what immediately comes to his mind. Evidently, there's a disagreement between two prominent women in the church. And we see here that Paul placed a lot of importance on spiritual unity within the fellowship of believers. As I said, there's two important women within the church who had some sort of disagreement. We are not told what it is. It was big enough that it reached the ears of the Apostle Paul. And where was Paul? In prison. So he hears about this while he's in prison. This is when he wrote to them. At this time, he was in prison. He hears about this and he sends a letter back to the church. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. The great Apostle Paul was writing to them from prison and thought it important enough to mention them by name in this letter about a disagreement. I think it's even more significant when you think about how this would play out. Who did he write the letter to? The church. It wasn't written to these two individuals. It was written to the church. And it was going to be read from the church publicly. I wonder what they thought about as they sat in church and heard this letter being read to the church. Paul's language shows his concern. It says that he urged them. The NSV says urge. It's entreat in the ESV. It's a word of pleading. He used it twice. He urged Iodia and Sintichi to live in what? Harmony. I don't know about you, but I wonder what the disagreement was about. That's the, I guess, the gossip nature of us. I wonder if it was the kind of thing that still happens today. I'm pretty sure that the disagreement was really not even a big thing. Now, any disagreement that brings disunity is no small thing. But what I mean by that is it wasn't a disagreement over some large doctrinally important issue. How do I know that? What would Paul have done if it had been? He would have addressed it, wouldn't he? He would have took sides with the one that was correct and he would have admonished the one that was wrong. We know he would because he's done it before. He even rebuked Peter. If you went back in Galatians and read the account in Galatians 2.11, you'll see that Paul said he confronted Peter to his face when he was in error. So we know he would have done this if it had been a doctrinal issue or some other really important matter, but he doesn't do that. It wasn't the issue that was big. It was the disunity that it caused that was big. Now, these were most likely very influential members of the church. And their disunity was most likely causing significant dissension within the body. 
Again, especially if it had reached Paul in prison in Rome. And it is human nature for people to talk, to pick sides, to pick the sides of your friends. And before you know it, there's this disunity bubbling within the body. So I pose the question, does this type of thing happen in the church today? Absolutely. Does it happen at Lakeside? Probably more than we want to admit. What kind of non-essential disagreements has the potential to cause disunity within the body today? There's many. It could be anything. It's usually something that someone has strong feelings about, and when someone else disagrees with them, it has the potential to cause some hard feelings. And if not handled correctly, it can cause division, which left unchecked can snowball, and before you know it, it's grown into disunity. I tried to think of some things that maybe I have heard about that... I know have happened. I thought of a couple of things I'm aware of. There are people today that have strong feelings about how to educate their children. Some choose homeschooling. Some choose lakeside school. Some have chosen private school. Some choose public schools. Some parents take very strong stands on what they consider to be the best. And although Scripture doesn't take a stand, there are some who are very articulate about it. And when someone else takes an alternate stand, it occasionally causes strife. I've heard of parents disagreeing over whether to vaccinate their kids or not. Scripture doesn't speak on this. But because of strong stances and Facebook posts and different things, I've seen people get kind of in conflict over things like that. I've seen and heard of people that involved in ministry who feel like their opinion wasn't heard or that they had feelings about doing something a certain way and somebody disagreed And there could be many, many things like this. And I'm positive that it happens a lot more than I'm aware of. None of these matters are of huge importance in the context of Scripture, but the disunity that it can cause is huge. It's interesting to me that this disagreement between these two women is brought up in the context of having a strong and stable faith. I had to think about that a bit. But if you think about it, it's not hard to see the point. Paul has just taught us about being citizens of heaven. And when we listed the benefits of being a citizen of heaven, one of the things we studied was that we are now part of a family, a fellowship, an eternal family. A broken relationship in the family is never good. Being part of a church family makes us stronger. It makes us better. We hold each other accountable. We bear one another's burdens. We help restore one who stumbles. We encourage one another. We meet each other's needs. We mentor. We build one another up. And if there's dissension in the body, then the church as a whole is not able to provide the stability we need. Even if the teaching and preaching is sound, if there is dissension in the body, a church will not be a place of stability. It will lose some of its power and its witness. I cannot stress the importance of this enough. It's a very serious issue that I believe many people within the church do not embrace the way they should. Do you remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, If you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, what did he say do? Leave your gift at the altar First, go be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Do you think Jesus thinks its unity is important? Of course he does. Read his high priestly prayer in John 17. That's the primary focus of his own prayer. 
And the burden is on both parties, whether you feel like you were wronged or not. Scripture puts the burden on both parties to seek reconciliation. So I wonder how many unreconciled relationships exist, even here at Lakeside. It shouldn't be that way. Paul's exhortation to these two women was straightforward and simple. Live in harmony. In the Greek, it literally reads to be of the same mind. But Paul doesn't say just get along. He says live in harmony. How? In the Lord. That's important. Paul knows that when we have a problem in a relationship that either one or both the parties are not in alignment with the Lord. The way to fix it is to get right with the Lord, with Scripture. There's another lesson to learn here. Notice that Paul doesn't just address the two women. Look again at verse 3. He says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He knows these women need help from the church. Paul doesn't name the person he talks to. He calls him true companion. The word translated means yoke fellow. It refers to someone who shares the same burden. Paul didn't call him by name. Well, there's some disagreement on that. Some people say maybe that his name actually was the name of the word that's translated yoke fellow. It could have been. Do you remember the slave name who was in the book of Philemon? His name was Onesimus. Do you remember what his name meant? It meant useful. Paul used that in appealing to Philemon. He said, Onesimus is still useful to you. So this person's name could have been the word we translated yoke fellow. If it wasn't, and he was unnamed, I don't think it was because he wanted to keep it a secret. He just called the two women by name. So I don't think he would be afraid to name him by name. I think it was because I think he assumed everyone would know who he was talking to. If you go back and look at the opening lines of this epistle, you will see that Paul addresses this letter to all saints at Philippi along with the overseers and deacons. I think there was a primary overseer that Paul knew, maybe even placed into service, and all the people probably knew who he was. It was probably this person that was reading the letter to the church. He petitions him to help these women work out their differences. These women worked alongside of Paul, along with a man by the name of Clement, and other fellow workers whose names are not important. God knows who they are. The lesson here is that if there is discord in the body, besides the individuals involved having a responsibility to deal with it, it is the responsibility of other believers, and especially the leaders, to help, to assist in bringing harmony back to the body. It's that important. It's not something anyone enjoys doing. If you're like me, you hate conflict. But as Christians, and especially leaders, we are called to maintain the unity of the body because disunity leaves the church and individual Christians vulnerable and unstable. In order to be a rock-solid church, in order to be rock-solid Christians, we need to cultivate and maintain unity in the body. Next, we're going to see in order to be mature and stable Christians, we need to cultivate and maintain the joy of the Lord in our lives. Look at verse 4. Short sentence. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is a very familiar verse, but familiar doesn't make it easy, does it? Sometimes when I think about joy, I do it in the context of thinking of it as an emotion that just happens. 
But we can see here that Paul uses an imperative. It's not something we long for. It's something we do. The kind of joy Paul's talking about is being much more than being happy or even content. It's an inner rejoicing that permeates one's being irregardless of the circumstances they find themselves in. When you think about the Apostle Paul's life, all that he went through, from an earthly standpoint, we could easily see how he might be depressed or lack joy. But what do we find Paul doing all the time, even in jail? Singing, praising the Lord. He's always joyful. Even in the middle of what we would consider horrible circumstances. One of the main themes of the whole book of Philippians is joy. Paul uses the word joy or rejoicing 16 times in this short letter. How could Paul have so much joy in spite of the difficult life and circumstances which were much harder than most of ours? It's because he treasured knowing Christ in such a deep and personal way. He didn't just say rejoice. He said rejoice how? In the Lord. And it's the in the Lord that makes all the difference. So what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? It means knowing the Lord Jesus Christ in a deep personal way and treasuring him. It means he is the object of our joy. Who he is. What he has done. What he is doing. What he will do. Think about this for a minute. I'll just hit some highlights. Who is the Lord? Creator, King, Holy, Eternal, All-Powerful, All-Knowing, Ever-Present, Most Righteous. He's our Father, the one who loved us, the one who formed us and knew us in our mother's womb. That's who we're talking about. What has He done? He saved us from perishing, number one. He broke into our lives, delivered us from the penalty of sin. If we knew nothing else, we could rejoice for that reason alone the rest of our lives. We once were enslaved to sin. Our destiny was destruction, condemned to spend an eternity in hell because of our rebellion. But now, because of Him, we have been set free. Free from the curse of death. Freedom to no longer walk in darkness. He made us citizens of heaven. What's He doing now? He's protecting us, providing for us. He answered our prayers. He's sanctifying us, molding us, shaping us to be more like Him. He's working all things out for our good to those who love Him. He's perfecting us, preparing us for eternity. And we can rejoice not only in who He is and what He has done and is doing, but what He will do. He has just told us about being citizens of heaven and one day returning and turning these mortal sin-stained bodies into glorious resurrected ones, taking us to be with Him in a place where there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more struggle with sin. And on and on and on and on we could go. Just scratching the surface of what rejoicing in the Lord means. That is why we can rejoice even in hard times. That's why Timothy said, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. That's what Paul is talking about when he says rejoice in the Lord. That's why he can say do it always. Because it doesn't depend on circumstances. It doesn't depend on whether it's raining or the sun shining. Whether we are healthy or hurting. Because our Savior is alive and we can take our eyes off of ourselves and we can look to Him and be joyful. Who should be the most joyful people in the world? Christians. Now you may have heard it said that joy is not an emotion. It's an act of the will. 
And it's because of scriptures like the one we're looking at where we are commanded to rejoice. Many people believe that God would not command us to feel a certain way, so hence joy is not a feeling. I do not agree with that. I do believe joy is an emotion. Now, I think it's much more than that. It's not merely an emotion, but I believe it is. We don't have time to go through all the scriptures to make the point, but if you study the usage of the word in scripture, you'll find many. Many times it is paired in the same sentences and context with other emotions, such as sorrow and grief, such language as turning your sorrow to joy. It's hard to comprehend in those contexts that this is, at least in some measure, joy is a feeling. Or we would have to conclude that sorrow and grief were not feelings. Also, if you study scriptures, especially in the Psalms, you'll find that many times the word joy is linked with the word glad. For instance, Psalm 32, verse 11, David says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. To rejoice in something is to be glad in it. This is not a mere decision. When is the last time you were depressed and you said to yourself, I'm going to rejoice, and you began shouting for joy? It doesn't work that way usually. I like what John MacArthur said. He said, Christian joy is not an emotion on top of an emotion. It is not a feeling on top of a feeling. It is a feeling on top of a fact. It is an emotional response to what I know to be true about my God. I think he nailed it. So at its root, joy is an emotion. It just tops all others because the circumstances that tug at you to be less than joyful are overshadowed by the truths that engulf you as a child of God. The circumstance you find yourself in being a citizen of heaven, of having a heavenly Father who cares about you and wants what's best for you, that circumstance, those truths, overshadow all the others. As I was meditating on this one morning while I was walking, I remembered when Terry's dad was killed in a car wreck 20 years ago. He was only 59 years old. He was really loved, and it was a tragic time. It happened on the day that Terry's sister brought their firstborn child, his grandchild, home from the hospital. They were leaving their house after visiting them when it happened. It was a horrible time in the life of our family. I remember that one of the things that got us through it, especially Terry's sister, Vicki, and her husband, Kelly, was the joy that that newborn baby brought into their life. Even amidst the horrible circumstance of losing her father, there was still a joy within her. Now, I understand that's not a good example and cannot be compared to the joy of the Lord, but it's an example of two competing emotions that were both based on circumstances going on simultaneously. And although it was a very sad time, it was a very joyous time. Joy is an emotion, and to say otherwise, I think, takes away our humanness. But it is also much more than an emotion because what holds it up what is underneath is not human. It's supernatural. It comes from a different world. Therefore, it is possible to have joy in this life even when it seems impossible. Scripture's clear that it can be commanded. Our verse here, it's a command. We don't wait for the emotion to be stirred up. This is seen in other scripture. We are commanded not only to give, but to give how? Cheerfully. Christian leaders, our shepherds, are to serve, but they're to serve willingly and eagerly. God's Word brings to us commands that cover the whole range of emotion, which reveals to us that joylessness, not having joy, is a sin. 
just as much as stealing or lying or any other sin. So, I'm going to be rather blunt here, but I believe Scripture says this. In general, if you are not a joyful person, then you have a spiritual problem in your life, and you are disobedient. I'm not talking about clinical depression, where there may be some type of chemical imbalance. I'm not talking about having to be bubbly and outgoing with a fake smile all the time. You know people like that. I'm talking about an inner joy, a peace, a contentment based on a faith and a loving God that permeates every aspect of your life regardless of what else happens or is going on at the time. I'm not sure if you've thought about it this way, but another thing to consider is that being a joy-filled Christian brings glory to God. Isn't that our primary purpose as a Christian? To bring glory to God? Having joy does that. When we have the joy of the Lord, it means we are choosing to acknowledge His sovereignty, His goodness. We are placing our trust in Him even when we can't see it, when we don't feel it. I love a saying that I've heard several times. I think it might have been John Piper. I didn't look it up. It's, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. When you are satisfied in God, you will have joy. So how do you do it? You do what we've been talking about. You take your thoughts off of yourself and you place them on God. Who He is, what He's done, what He is doing, what He will do. Look at life through kingdom eyes, not selfish, me-centered eyes. Talk to yourself, remind yourself of these great truths. To become a rock-solid Christian, we must cultivate and maintain unity among believers. And we must cultivate and maintain an attitude of joy in the Lord. The third stable, rock-like faith principle that we need to practice is found in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What do some of the other versions say? Gentle spirit be known. King James says moderation. The Greek word used is a hard word to convey in a single English word. That's why there's so many different words used in different translations. Some commentaries describe this word as indulging the faults of others, gentleness, forbearance, leniency. What exactly does this mean? One of the things I did in order to try and discern what kind of person this was describing was to take the opposite approach. What's the opposite of reasonable? Unreasonable. The opposite of gentle, harsh, or rough. The opposite of moderation would be excessive. So we are talking about the kind of person that is opposite of unreasonable, harsh, or excessive. So what kind of person would this be? When you combine all the different renderings together, you start to get a glimpse of what kind of virtue this would be. It would be one that is not self-centered, that is patient, one that does not retaliate when wronged, not bitter or unforgiving, doesn't seek vengeance, doesn't speak unkindly. We are told that we are to exhibit these attributes to everyone, that these attributes do not go unnoticed, that they will be known by this. I use the phrase gracious humility, that we need to learn to cultivate and maintain an attitude of gracious humility. 
So think about this for a moment. Are you this kind of person? Or are you the kind of person who people say about you, don't cross him. You don't want to stand in his way or her way. They'll run over you. Sometimes we hold up people like that, don't we? That have strong personalities, opinionated, stand your ground kind of people. Is that the kind of person Paul is describing here? No. And he says that this is the attribute of someone who is cultivating a stable, rock-like faith. He's telling us that people who are not graciously humble, that they'll be spiritually unstable, that they can be knocked around when things don't go their way, when they are treated unfairly. Paul a little later is going to tell them, on down a few verses, he's going to tell them that he's learned to be content in whatever circumstance he's in. And that is what spiritually stable Christians do. I think we're going to finish there for today, so we'll have prayer time. So what have we seen so far? Paul, after telling the Philippians to stand firm, the thought that comes to his mind immediately after this, the virtue he sees as being important to assist him in doing this, to have a stable, unwavering faith, is to cultivate and maintain unity within the body, to cultivate and maintain an unceasing joy in the Lord, and to exhibit a spirit of gracious humility to everyone. We'll look at the remaining four exhortations next time, but until then, I pray that each of us will examine our own life and not just think of other people that you know who need to hear this. Maybe you have a conflict in your life with a brother or sister that's never been fully dealt with. Paul says that's important. Maybe you struggle with maintaining a real sense of joy in the Lord. Or your personality struggles with having a gentle, forbearing spirit. Don't take these things lightly. Paul says people who do not practice these virtues will not be as stable as they should. These are signs of a person who has a rock-solid faith. These are characteristics of rock-solid Christians. And that's our desire. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul and how you brought him out of such a life that was just going in the complete wrong direction and you put him onto a path of becoming a pillar of the faith and he lives on generations and generations later as just a rock-solid man of God and we want to be like him. Help us to take the words that he imparts to us today. May we... Let them penetrate our own lives. See where we need to do better, Father. If there be any weaknesses in these areas, may we acknowledge them, repent of them, and move to become more like your son, Jesus. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.